Good evening. Turn, if you would, tonight to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is where we're going to be this evening. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the music that we've enjoyed tonight and the truth and song that we've been able to consider if we gave our hearts and minds to it. Lord, there is such a need on the part of each of us to be willing to trust you and to be willing to obey you, whatever that would look like, whatever it would uh, be for us, uh, again, according to your will. God, I pray that you'd help us to uh, just uh, to think about that from time to time. God, I pray that you'd bless the effort to preach your word tonight, that you'd use it to speak to our hearts. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I'm going to begin by talking about something that you are probably aware of. I would suspect that you are aware of this. It is something that happens so often. It is something that happens so frequently that you probably don't even realize it's happening more times than not. Probably the only time that it would get our attention is if it was just so blatant, so obvious, so over the top, or if it was directed toward us. If it was directed toward us, then we would be very mindful of it. We might even be hypersensitive toward it. But what I want to talk to us tonight about for just a couple of moments as we make our way into the message is this is that we live in a culture and we live in a society that likes to gripe and complain. Would you agree with that? That we live in a culture, we live in a society where people like to gripe and complain. And again, it happens so often, it happens so frequently, that most people don't even give attention to it. They don't even really consider what's being said. And as a result of griping and complaining, this is what we know, is that people tend, obviously, then to be very, very critical. Would you agree with that? That people are critical, and because of this critical nature, they like to gripe and they like to complain about whatever it may be that's bothering them. Now, I want to illustrate it just in a couple of ways tonight, not because you don't understand what I'm talking about, but just to try to get the ball rolling so that we're all on the same page. How many of us have ever heard people gripe or complain about the education system these days? They say things about the teachers don't teach, they just teach a test, they don't have control over the classroom, they never bring or they never send homework home. What's going on in these schools? What's taking place? Boy, things are sure different today than they were when I was a kid. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a hundred years ago, things were different. You know, I mean, a long, long time ago, things were different, right? 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago, things were different. Sometimes people occasionally, not not a lot maybe, but occasionally every once in a while, people like to gripe about the government. You know, Whether it be the local government, the state government, or the federal government, people like to gripe, they like to complain, they like to be very critical of what our government is doing. Sometimes people like to gripe and complain and be critical of other families. Have you ever noticed that, that sometimes they like to be very critical of other families? Well, this family does this, this family does that. They don't do this, they don't do that. And if they would just do this, then this might be the case. And if they would do that, whatever it may be, just a very, very critical spirit toward other families. Many times that critical spirit is directed toward their employer. 
the employer does this, and my boss does this, and what about this, and what about this, and on and on and on it goes, griping and complaining, this very critical spirit that they possess about their employer, about the company that they work for. So that all being said, tonight I want us to think about something that may surprise you, it may not, but I want us to think about this truth, and I'd really like us to listen to this because it's important, all right? And that is this, is that a lot of the criticism that is leveled against people is legitimate criticism that they deserve. Are we, are we listening to this? It is legitimate criticism that they deserve. So we might say it like this, does the education system deserve some criticism? Yes, they do. There are certainly some things that they could do different if they would take a different approach to it. It would be a better environment. It would be a better product that they were putting out. So yes, some of the criticism that they receive, it is legitimate and they deserve it, just as the government deserves some of the criticism they receive. Because of the corruption in government, because of the corruption in politics, it has made it almost impossible for people like you and I to really trust politicians, to believe that they really care about us. And so whenever they are criticized, most of us are not jumping to their defense because we believe they are deservant of the criticism they are receiving. Let's be honest. Sometimes the families that are being criticized, those families deserve the criticism. Some of the things they are doing, some of the decisions they are making, some of the things they're not doing, those decisions and some of those actions deserve the criticism. And right on down the line, the employer and the company, they deserve criticism sometimes because they're not really mindful of the employee as much as they are the bottom line or the customers or whatever it may be. And so all these things, they receive the criticism, and many, 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 many times they deserve the criticism but I want us to think about an aspect of this that is oftentimes true, maybe not always, but it is oftentimes true that there are occasions where when a person is critical of something, they themselves are guilty of the very thing they are critical of. So well, what do you mean? Well, think about this. If parents handled the education system better than most parents do, do you think it might change the education system? You know, if parents were more involved, if parents were more vocal, if parents were more supportive of the teachers and not so protective of their precious little children that couldn't do anything wrong, do you think that might change the political or the uh, educational landscape just a little bit? Well, of course it would. If we held our elected officials to a higher standard and voted them out and we're not always just critical of the other party, but we're honest enough to admit that some in our own party from time to time need to be booted out, would that make a difference? Well, of course it would make a difference. And, and is it true that, that sometimes the very things that we are critical of by way of other families, uh, we could look at our own families and say, well, I think there are some issues there that we could probably afford to address. You understand this, right? A lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, the very things that we are being critical of of others are things that we ourselves are either struggling with or we fail with. So people are critical. They like to gripe. They like to complain. It is a worthy criticism. But oftentimes, oftentimes, 
The person who is doing the griping certainly has their own set of issues they need to work through before dealing with the issues of the other individual or entity. Now, why mention that? Well, tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going to be, and as we are, I want to share just a couple of things with us, all right? I think most of you know this, that we're just a few days, several days away from Easter, and it hasn't really worked out for me to do this in the past, or at least I've not taken advantage of the opportunity to do it. But I want to spend the next couple of Wednesday nights dealing with some passages that may around the Easter time get a quick reference, might get a passing look at, but I'd like us to look at some things that might be helpful, that might be beneficial to us in relation to the whole Easter story, because there are certainly other elements to the Easter story other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Okay, so what we're going to do tonight and, and, and next week for sure is we're going to look at some passages or look at some scriptures that, that would deal with portions or elements of the Easter story. And I want us to think about this because, again, I believe it could be very helpful to us. So by the time we come to Matthew chapter 26, let's keep some things in mind. Very basic, simple review. I know that most of you will know what I'm about to share with you. But by the time we come to Matthew 26, here's what we know we know that Christ has enjoyed a public ministry for a few years now, right? Somewhere in the neighborhood of three and a half years that Christ has enjoyed this public ministry. In the midst of this private, not in the midst of the private, in the midst of this public ministry, here is what we know to be true, that Christ has performed many, many, many miracles on behalf of the people, and that has got him quite the following over those years, correct? Whenever he started healing the sick, whenever he, whenever he started opening the eyes of the blind, whenever he began healing those who had been crippled, whenever he began raising the dead, friends, that got the attention of the people and the people began to follow him. And as a result of the people following Christ, it began to have an impact on the authority that the religious leaders in their day had over the people. So the religious leaders did not necessarily care for the ministry of Christ, didn't care for the impact that he was having in the lives of so many people in the region. And then when you remember this, when you consider this, it only accentuated the division between Christ and the religious leaders of the day. Christ was very vocal in his negative opinion toward the chief priests and the scribes and the rulers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, etc., you understand this, right? Christ called them out on their hypocrisy. He called them out on their worldliness. He called them out on their ungodliness. Christ was not in this to make friends with the religious leaders of the day. And so when you think about the crowd that he was gathering, when you think about the crowd that he was amassing, in addition to how he was confronting them when it was appropriate and when it was necessary, you understand that there was a great, great animosity and hatred by the religious leaders directed toward Christ. We understand this, do we not? All right, so keeping this in mind, switching gears just a little bit, we know this, that Christ traveled with 12 disciples. Christ traveled with 12 disciples. As I've said before, they were able to enjoy this front row seat to everything that Christ did. They were able to hear all the sermons and all the lessons that were taught. The disciples enjoyed an opportunity that no one else 
then or ever since, obviously, was able to enjoy. So you've got Christ who traveled with his disciples and he did the miracles and he did the teaching and he confronted the religious leaders of their day. He exposed their hypocrisy. The religious leaders hated them or hated him and the religious leaders wanted Christ dead. Did they not? They wanted Christ dead. But they were in kind of a tough situation because they knew that Christ was popular So that if they took the life of Christ in an untimely fashion or in a way that could not have been or would not have been acceptable, then they understood that there would have been an uprising of the people against them. So now you've got all these moving parts going at this time. You've got Christ doing what he was doing, the disciples involved in the ministry, the chief priests trying to hold on to their power and their influence. They wanted Christ gone. They wanted to to eliminate the threat to their power. And so with all of these things going on, there were some some issues that, that, that were needing to be resolved, but obviously were not going to be resolved. But in verse number 14, here is what we find we find that one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, one of the twelve, one of the ones who traveled with Christ, one of the ones who saw the miracles and heard the sermons, was even himself empowered to do miracles on behalf of God. Judas Iscariot, it says, went unto the chief priest, And notice what it says in verse number 15. It says, And said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. So here is Judas in a part of the inner circle. Judas is a part of the the closest aspect of who Christ is. And we understand this. We know this. We're aware of this. But he went unto the chief priest and he said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. I will make it possible that you can have Christ. The uprising of the people will not take place. What will you give me for this? So in verse number 15, at the end it says, And they covenanted, or they promised, they they swore with him for 30 pieces of silver. What did that translate to, or what would that translate to into today's economy? Nobody knows, nobody is certain, but here's what is obvious, is that both parties were satisfied with the amount. Judas was happy to take it, the chief priests were more than happy to pay it, and so it says in verse number 16, And from that time he, that being Judas, sought opportunity to betray him, that being Christ. So from the time that the deal was made, from the time that the transaction took place in verse number 15, we're aware of this, we know this, we're mindful of it, we we understand it completely, that it was from that time, the scripture says, that Judas began looking for the perfect opportunity to betray Christ. He was going to do what it took to deliver Christ into the hands of, of the chief priest. So all you have to do is look over in verse number 49. And we understand that Christ, by the time we get to verse number 49, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is having his time of prayer. And it says, And forthwith 
he came to Jesus, that being Judas, and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So it's in verse number 49 and 50 that Judas was able to do the act of betrayal of Christ. The chief priests were able to get their man, and Judas was able to collect the money. Now, as you think about this, the word betray because it's used in verse number 16, the word betray is a word that most of us are familiar with, are we not? It's a word that's still fairly common in our society. It's still a word that, that many of us would, would use from time to time. And so I think most of us know the overall thought behind the word betray. It means to deliver, as mentioned in verse number 15. But here's what it also means to betray, and this is evident in the definition. It means this, to be disloyal or to be unfaithful. The willingness of Judas to betray Christ shows and proves that he was disloyal and he was unfaithful. The word unfaithful, as you would probably imagine, means this, that is someone who is unreliable and untrustworthy. So what could be said of Judas based upon his willingness to betray Christ? Well, obviously, he was a man who was not loyal to Christ. He was a man who was not faithful to Christ. He turned out to be one that you could not rely upon, and it turned out that he was one that you could not trust. Now, friends, from my perspective... That is a bad commentary of the final chapter of the life of Judas. Everyone who knows anything about the scripture, who knows anything about this story, Judas will forever go down as the one who betrayed Christ. He will forever go down as the one who showed no loyalty, as the one who showed no faithfulness, who was not reliable, who could not be trusted, who could not be depended upon. That is a terrible, terrible way by which to exit this life, especially in relation to a man who had spent three and a half years investing in your life, loving you, caring for you, trying to nurture you, trying to reach you. That is a terrible way to end his life. And, and as a result of that, let me say this, and you know this, that over the years, many, many people have been highly critical of Judas for his actions. How dare he do this to Christ, right? After everything that Christ was to him, obviously Christ being the perfect, sinless Son of God, for all the people, or of all the people, of Judas to betray it was Christ? How dare you? You're a sorry, sorry individual. And of all the criticism that Judas would receive, of anyone who would be critical of Judas, here's what I think we would all agree upon, is that he deserves every negative, critical condescending statement that could be directed toward him. Amen. Judas doesn't really deserve any sympathy. 
We don't really need to look at Judas as though he were some kind of a victim in this, that somehow he got wrapped up into this. Listen, Judas knew exactly what he was doing long before he did it, long before this was all consummated. Judas knew what he was doing. He was a sorry individual, and every critical statement made of him, he is highly deservant of. He deserves no sympathy because of what he did. So that being said tonight, I want us to kind of shift gears a little bit, and I want us to think about something. How many of us tonight know people somewhat similar to Judas? Now don't zone out here, okay? Don't, don't, don't assume that we're almost done because we're not, okay? We've still got a few more minutes, okay? How many of us know people, and we would say, you know, there are some similarities between them and Judas. You say, well, I think maybe I know what you're talking about, and if I understand what you're saying, then yeah, probably, but I'm not completely sure. Okay, well, let's think about this. How many of us know people who like the idea of identifying with Christ? They, they like the idea of identifying themselves as a follower of Christ. They might call themselves a Christian. They enjoy the elements of Christianity that are convenient for them. We know plenty of people who like the idea of associating with Christ when it is convenient for them and when it is conducive to their current situation or their future endeavors. We all know people like that. As a result of that, we unfortunately know people like this. That as they enjoy the identification with Christ, with Christianity, and what all they believe it to be by way of an immediate benefit to them, at the same time, here is what they have proven themselves to be. Disloyal to the Christ they claim to identify with. Have we ever known people like this? They identify themselves as a Christian. They identify themselves maybe as a follower of Christ. And yet as you watch them, here is what you realize. You realize they're not really loyal to this Christ they say that they are a follower of. They're not loyal and they're not faithful to this one that they say they are a follower of. As a result then of not being loyal, as a result then of not, them not being faithful... Here is what you conclude. They are unreliable and you cannot trust them by way of their testimony of a follower of Christ. Amen. You know, you, you just know people and you say, you know, you like Christianity when it's convenient for you. You like Christianity when you perceive there to be a benefit to it. And yet when it's not convenient, when it doesn't serve a benefit in your life, here's what you have proven over and over and over again, that you are not loyal to Christ. You are not loyal to His cause. You are not faithful. Therefore, you are not reliable and you are not dependable. Now, friends, if someone is not loyal, if someone is not faithful, if someone is not reliable, if someone is not trustworthy, then what are they doing to the relationship they claim to have with Christ? They are betraying it. There is a betrayal of this professed relationship 
when one is unwilling to be loyal and faithful to the one they claim to have the relationship with. So how do they prove this lack of loyalty? How do they prove this lack of faithfulness? How do they betray the relationship that they like to suggest they have? Well, they betray it in many, many ways, do they not? They betray it in their manner of life. All you've got to do is watch them and realize, okay, what they profess and how they live when it's not convenient, when it's not easy, you realize, okay, in the actions, they're betraying this relationship they suggest to have. In their conversation, in their priorities, just in in the way that they conduct themselves, here is what you find. They are not loyal. You cannot trust them. You cannot rely on them. Their word means nothing by way of suggesting that they are a follower of Christ. They are betraying that relationship. Are Are we in agreement on this? So I don't know about you, but when I have to deal with those people, you know what I become very quickly? I become very critical of them. When I have to deal with someone who names the name of Christ, yet their actions prove no loyalty and no faithfulness, no reliability and no dependability, I become highly critical of them. And you know what? They deserve the criticism. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, sir or ma'am, and then you're going to live this way, if you're going to act this way, if you're going to speak this way, if you're going to let your life be governed by the world, if this is how you are going to conduct yourself, if that is how you choose to live while calling yourself a Christian, if you are willing to betray the relationship you proclaim to have, then I have every right and you deserve to be criticized based on how you're living. It's fair. If you can think of someone right now who claims to be a Christian and their life has proven a lack of loyalty and faithfulness and they are betraying that relationship, the criticism is valid and they deserve the criticism that they receive. But tonight I want us to think about something that I mentioned at the very beginning. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes I have found this to be true. That what I am being critical of, I am also guilty of. Think about that. The very thing that I find myself being critical of, if I would just step back and be honest, I would have to admit that that is also the very thing that I am guilty of. 
I profess salvation and I profess a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what I profess, that is what I proclaim, that is what I hold to, that is what I would say tonight, that is what I would hope to say in any situation, under any circumstance, that I am a born-again, saved child of God. That's what I would profess of myself. So then what should be true of me? Well, it should be true that my actions would not betray the relationship and the profession that I claim to have. See, if I am going to tell you and if I'm going to tell anyone else that I am a Christian, then my actions should never betray what I profess with my mouth. And your actions should never betray your profession as a Christian and what you declare with your mouth. So if you're like me, you look at this person and they profess salvation and yet their actions are betraying the relationship and I get so critical of that, many times, if I'm not careful... If I'm not mindful, you know what my actions are doing? My actions are actually betraying the relationship that I claim to have. Say, so, well, what exactly do you mean? Well, I mean this. How many of us have ever been silent when we knew we needed to speak up and say something? You know, we were in an environment and, and, and we were in this situation where, where there was a need for a clear voice of a child of God. There was a need for someone to speak up and say, listen, that's not right. That's not scriptural. That's not biblical. But because the environment wasn't really conducive to us speaking out and kind of being the oddball in the room, we just kind of you know, shrunk back and just kind of kept quiet and then just kind of griped about the situation later. Have we ever been in a situation where we did not prove ourselves reliable and faithful and trustworthy and dependable to speak up for the cause of Christ like we knew we should have in that moment? Yeah. So we want to be critical of all these people when in fact... I haven't exactly arrived in that category of always maintaining the relationship like I ought. Sometimes the manner of life is somewhat betraying of the relationship that I claim to have. You know, I mean... Do I want to do right? Yes. Do I want to serve the Lord? Yes. Do I want to be what I'm supposed to be? Yes. 
But see, in, in my fallen nature, though this is no excuse for it, here's what happens. I can get into a mindset, I can get into a groove, I can get into a way of behavior, and I can justify it, and I can rationalize it, and my manner of life is not biblical, my manner of life is not scriptural, and so as a result of an unbiblical, unscriptural manner of life, I am betraying the relationship because I'm not being faithful and dependable and reliable and trustworthy to the relationship I claim to have. And I don't think I'm the only one who struggles in my manner of life sometimes. Sometimes it can be the conversation that gets me. Things are said that I didn't need to say. Things are, you know, talked about that I didn't really need to engage in. I want to be clear on this. Not crude, not vulgar, not profane. But sometimes I just don't need to say certain things that come out of my mouth. You know, I just, I, I didn't need to say that. I didn't need to repeat that. It was gossip. It was hearsay, what I was repeating. And I just didn't need to say it. It was a very critical spirit about something that I didn't need to have a critical spirit of. And whenever I, I allow myself in my conversation to go places that I should not go, you know what I'm doing? I'm betraying the relationship that I claim to have with my Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes I get my eyes put on the wrong things in this world. And pretty soon my eyes are off the things of Christ and my eyes are on the things of this world and that's what I'm pursuing and that's what's gotten my attention and that's what's gotten my affection. And as a result of that, you know what I'm proving? I'm proving I'm really not as reliable and dependable and trustworthy as I'd like to think that I am. What do I find myself doing more times than I care to admit? Betraying the relationship that I suggest to have. I don't know about you, but I find it interesting that it is so easy for me to look at Judas in the Scripture and say, what a sorry individual. You sorry individual, after everything Christ did for you, after everything that, that you were able to witness, after everything that was accomplished in your life, what could have been, I can't believe that you would do that, and yet if I look at my life, how dare me? After all the things he's done for me, after all the things I've been able to witness, after all the things he's accomplished in my life, for me to still betray him from time to time, how dare me? What a sorry individual I am sometimes. But if I'm not careful, I can be so critical of Judas and completely overlook the obvious in my life. I'm going to ask you tonight, just, just ask you to consider this. Is it possible that sometimes you're exactly like what I am? You see the failures of other people. You see others betraying the relationship they claim to have. And if we're not careful, we completely miss it in our own personal lives. Amen. You know when that happens, don't you, that there are people being critical of us? Did you know that? They really are. Now, I don't think they'd be critical of me. No, no, you're just not. 
you're not smart enough to catch it, okay? They're, they're being critical of you. And, and you know what? They have a right to be. They really do. My husband's just critical toward me. Well, with you acting that way, he has a right to be critical towards you. Well, my wife is just so critical of me. Well, yeah, with you acting that way, you deserve it. You know, my kids, my parents are just so critical. Well, look at your behavior. You deserve it. That's a hard pill for some of us to swallow, isn't it? That we actually deserve the criticism, yes, but, but guess what? We deserve it as much as anyone else because if we're not going to live up to what we profess, if we're not going to live up to what we would suggest to anybody else, then we deserve the kind of criticism that would come back at us. The reality is this, is if we're going to betray the relationship, then however people view us, we've got it coming. There needs to be within us this desire to be sensitive to our actions, to our conduct, to our manner of life, to our, to our, our conversation, if I've not said that already. There needs to be a sensitivity about how we live this life because you and I should never want it to be said of us that we betrayed the relationship. But if we're not careful... We'll get careless, we'll do it, not even notice we've done it, and then if someone dare criticize us, we'll get defensive of how dare they criticize us when we completely deserve the criticism coming our way. So is there any area in your life tonight where if you just let the Holy Spirit speak to you, is there any area in your life where you'd have to be honest and say, you know what, I'm not faithful there. I'm not reliable. I'm not dependable. I'm not trustworthy. Whenever it's not convenient, I don't do what I ought to be doing. I don't do what I should be doing. I, I, I see that betrayal in my own personal life. If that's the case, I would just say deal with it and address it before God. Take care of it and ask the Lord to help you to be more sensitive because if we're not sensitive toward it with the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we'll not notice it and will not realize just how critical people are of us and how deserving of it we really are. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to learn from this testimony, this example of Judas. Lord, that what he did, as, as terrible and as awful as it was, is something that many of us have done in, in a different way, but yet by way of principle, it's exactly what we've done. We've betrayed the relationship. We have completely betrayed you and showed a lack of loyalty on our part towards you. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be mindful of that so that we might avoid failure again in the future. So I pray that you bless the invitation tonight. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.